Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. To me, the story that struck out to me over the weekend was about how some drillers are now paying people to take the oil away from them. Basically, negative pricing in the oil patch, given the glut that we're seeing and the lack of storage available. Just shocking. Well, let's talk about that with Francisco Blanche, Bank of America, Global Head of Commodities and Derivatives Research. Lucky to have Francisco join us on the phone this morning. Fantastic to have you with us, Francisco. Let's start there, shall we? Are we breaching storage capacity in various parts of the United States? Uh, thanks for having me, Jonathan. Um, <clears throat> we, are, we are not yet, but we are going to get there very soon. I remember uh, you were asking before, what's the bigger shock? Is it the demand shock or the supply shock? Well, it's the demand shock. Uh, We think that demand will be down 17 million barrels a day in the month of April globally. Uh, Remember, that's a 17% decline on a 100 million barrel base. So um, uh, the supply shock, by contrast, I think is probably going to be about 3, 4 million barrels in April. Um, So so now we're looking at a massive glut that we've never seen before. Um, when when, when you say when you say Francisco demand goes down seventeen million barrels, what demand drops? I mean, what usage causes that drop in demand? Do we stop? I mean, is it John stop and do using Ubers and the Bentley and all that? What what causes it? Uh, well, so so first of all, um, I'd say the most impacted sector is uh, airlines. In, in the U.S. alone, we've seen traffic traffic down more than 85%, um, Tom, 85%. I mean, we've basically shut down most domestic travel. Uh, in Europe, sim- we can see similar numbers down 80 90% across most countries. Um, if you look at China, however, which is interesting, the, the drop there also was about 85% at the trial. Uh, however, they've only recovered to around... 40% of normal levels, despite uh, having been dealing with the virus for three months. So so clearly the airline sector is the most impacted one, uh, followed by, um, you know, you're asking about uh, Ubers. And I, mean, I think a lot of people are, are working from home now. So that's uh, a lot of restaurants are shut down. Uh, basically, people are going, are, are, are losing jobs. So there's a lot of people staying home, uh, either because they don't have jobs or because they're working remotely. So it's also hurting gasoline demand. We're hearing numbers down 30, down 40 percent year on year in gasoline demand here. So it's really across the board. But the most impacted sector is the airline sector. So going forward, Sebastian Gailey of Nordea Bank earlier in the show was saying that he expects oil to go back up to $45 a barrel at some point in the not so distant future. How realistic is that and how long lasting is this period of time where we could see sub $20 a barrel oil? Um, so, so we are, we are looking at this crisis in, in, in two, uh, looking at two main parameters. One is the depth of the initial drop. And then second is the duration of the crisis. Um, I think we have a, a, you know, I think we, we have a reasonable handle on the drop. Uh, we think 17 million barrels a day is, is the right number. It could be 20, it could be 15. It, it, again, it's hard to tell, right? Um, there's a lot of guesswork going on here. But then the duration is a little more complicated. Um, now, in China, as I said before, we started to see a, a, a very modest recovery. 
Although, for example, traffic, uh, which which uh, also took a big hit in China, is back to about 85% or normal, <clears throat> so roughly down 15% year on year, as opposed to numbers of 40-50% earlier, um, er, earlier in, in, in the right. first quarter. So, for, so that, those are the key numbers, really, to watch the recovery rate. Do you Sorry, just assume a weak bundled commodity index? Do you just assume weaker Aussie dollar versus the yen or other metrics? I mean, is it just a fade away for commodities? Um, it's going to be a little bit of fade away for a little bit. But, but then remember the other thing that's going to happen, Tom, in the, in the second half of the year, maybe in 2021, is that we are going to lose a lot of supply. Either because in cases like copper, uh, we have 15% of supply at risk, or in cases like oil, uh, we're just going to decimate investment across a broad range of regions, which in turn will lead to a, a supply decline into 2021. Um, and then, then as it relates to agriculture, there's been news about, you know, news about uh, eventually the, 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 some, some agricultural uh, commodity producers uh, facing um, coronavirus risks as well at their, at their plants. So I think I think the biggest risk really is is uh, again demand goes down initially, prices go down, but then as we recover, we will have hampered, we will have hurt our productive capacity, and thus will lead to the price rally uh, at, at some point in, in in the recovery cycle. Whether that's end of 2020 or 2021, I, I don't know. It depends on how long this this uh, uh, crisis lasts. Francisco Blanche there of Bank of America weighing in on the commodity route, the crude route specifically. We would like to welcome St. Louis Fed President Jim Bullard to Bloomberg Television and Radio Worldwide. Thank you for joining us this morning. I want to uh, see if we can't catch up a little bit. About 10 days ago, you predicted we could see unemployment as high as 30 percent in the second quarter, and you called for a massive stimulus program. We got a massive stimulus program, so does that change your forecast for unemployment and growth? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me this morning. Uh, I did uh, want to see pandemic relief. I wouldn't call it stimulus. I would call it pandemic relief. Uh, I, what I interpret the program as trying to do is stabilize incomes and stabilize businesses as we work our way through this investment in our national health over the next couple of months here. Um, on the unemployment, uh, we do have a blog on this. Uh, if you read the blog carefully, you'll see that there is a way to bound uh, the unemployment rate. It's going to be somewhere between 10% and, and I think the upper bound is like 42%. But that's because we're just identifying vulnerable workers in this environment. And uh, what's going to happen is that those uh, workers, some of those workers are going to have to seek relief so that they can pay their bills through this period. So we're expecting the unemployment rate to spike, but let's call that pandemic relief. Then they can pay their bills, and once the virus goes away, then we'll be able to return to normal. So hopefully, if this all works smoothly, and there's a lot in the legislation as well, um, we'll be able to come out on the other side and get the economy uh, uh, rocking again. Well, Wednesday is April 1st. Mortgage payments are due. Rent payments are due. Utility bills are due. Could we have a problem if people can't pay their bills on Wednesday? Uh, My sense is, uh, of course, we're in a crisis situation, but my sense is that everyone 
really understands what's going on here now because uh, obviously it's been the topic number one, not just in the U.S., but around the world. So I, I think people pretty much understand uh, that uh, the relief is supposed to enable people to pay their bills as best they can. Um, there might be some uh, uh, delays and things. Uh, you'd expect that in a crisis situation. But by and large, I think there are plenty of resources in this fiscal package to handle uh, what we're going to go through here. Well, the Main Street Lending Program that you guys have announced is in the package. Uh, how's that going to work, and when does that start? Uh, that's in the design phase right now. Uh, so I think from a firm's point of view, there are two ways to, to handle the crisis. Uh, one would be the traditional way, which would be to uh, shut down temporarily and send the workers over to the pandemic relief or unemployment line. And a lot of that is going to occur. That's already occurred. We saw with the claims number uh, last week. Uh, and that's okay. You're getting, uh, and, and the, um, the unemployment insurance benefit is beefed up. Uh, so they're going to get closer to 100% or maybe 100% of what they would, would have gotten uh, had they just continued to work. So I think that part, that's one way to go. But if, if the firm goes in that direction, they might lose connection with their workers. So another direction to go is to go to the Small Business Administration, get a loan, which is ultimately forgivable if you meet certain conditions, mainly that you keep your payroll uh, more or less intact. So if you go that route as a firm, then you might be able to retain all your workers, and then you, when uh, the startup occurs later, you'll be able to uh, have the same workers, and you don't have to go hire all over again and get your business uh, ramped up again. So that might be a better way to go for many uh, companies. If companies decide to go that way, then we'll see lower unemployment and more uptake on the SBA loan side. Your district has a lower incidence of infection rate at this point. So what's happening in your district? I normally ask you what the CEOs are telling you, but I also want to know what mom and pop are telling you from the mom and pop stores. Yeah, uh, we do have a lower rate of infection, but, uh, boy, it's pretty quiet. Uh, the You know, where I live here in the St. Louis metro area, you know, most things are shut down. People stay at home. Uh, so that makes me think, uh, and, and just reading about it across the country, that the idea that there's a lot of regional variation here is probably not uh, the right way to think about this. I think pretty much everywhere has has bought into the idea that uh, you should be very careful about going out and very careful about spreading this virus. Also, I think another thing to keep in mind, this is not just things that are ordered by health officials. This is individuals and families making their own decisions and businesses making their own decisions about how they want to handle the situation. So what you have is a kind of private sector and household response to the crisis, which includes them not wanting to get sick and not wanting to, uh, to get others that are in their circle sick. So because of that, um, regardless of what the health officials would say at this point, I think everyone wants to basically uh, stay home until this virus goes away. And so because of that, I think all across the country, you're basically in a partial shutdown situation. 
Let me ask you a couple of things about the bill that uh, passed and the Fed's new powers. The language in the bill says you can buy uh, corporate bonds uh, down to the lowest rating for corporates. And uh, those are obviously the ones who are going to need the most help, but they're also the ones most likely to see their ratings downgraded into junk, which in theory you can't own. So how much risk are you willing to take on? Yeah, uh, well, we've uh, got we've got to think about exactly how to execute on that one. But the the main idea of a program like that is to restore basic market functioning, uh, which uh, broke down as this crisis broke out here. So I think uh, we've got backing from the Treasury. That's a thirteen three program, uh, very powerful, and I think we'll be able to keep price discovery uh, going in that in that. Uh, sector there. Uh, Muni bonds also getting a nod in the bill. Uh, Is that going to be a new program to buy uh, munis or are you just going to use the existing uh, program that you set up last week? Well, again, I think uh, intervention in that kind of market is mostly that we want market functioning to occur. So I think investors got so worried about state and local government that that they started to pull away from uh, those kinds of investments, which have historically been uh, pretty solid. So uh, hopefully we'll get uh, price discovery uh, going again, and and uh, I think the, the market will actually be fine here. Again, I think there are plenty of resources in the bill uh, to handle our current situation, and that should reassure investors that state and local governments will be made whole here. Uh, the law of unintended consequences has kicked in in the mortgage market. The, the big, massive purchases you've made at MBS are now leading to big margin calls for uh, brokers. Uh, is, is that something you can do something about, or are there other uh, possible unintended consequences you worry about? Um, we we have heard reports of that, and I think that uh, the MBS purchases uh, can be adjusted so that we get uh, sort of accurate pricing in that in that market uh, to meet the needs of those that are producing MBS. Uh, we'll see how that goes. That's a very uh, minute-by-minute kind of uh, decision on intervention and purchases of MBS. But we have a great team in New York that's uh, that's working on that, and I think we'll be able to get uh, good outcomes there. I'm wondering, uh, when you think about where all this leads, uh, what you see ahead, you're going to have uh, – trillions in additional national debt. You're going to have billions in loans out to companies uh, at very low rates. Can you raise rates or are you pretty much stuck forever now? (laughs) Stuck forever. Uh, Well, uh, I think near term, uh, as we come out of this, uh, interest rates will will probably stay very low uh, for quite a while. Um, We are taking on more debt as a nation. Uh, but we're taking it on at very low interest rates, so that part uh, should work good, well for the near term. Um, you know, as we get further out past the crisis, uh, we'll have to evaluate our, our fiscal strategy and, and see what, but that'll be up to Congress uh, what they want to do. Uh, it's a big country. We can carry, you know, 10% more debt. I, you know, it's not ideal, but uh, we can certainly do it. And if there was ever a time, uh, where you wanted to uh, do something like this, now is that time. 
Uh, one last question here. Someone said when you first cut rates and set up lending programs, you were throwing the kitchen sink at things, and then you cut rates again and set up more programs and threw the kitchen sink again. Uh, do you have more than one sink, or do you throw the same <laughs> sink over and over again? Uh, it, basically, what's left in the toolbox? Well, I think the the bottom line is that this the, these thirteen three authorities uh, that are in the Federal Reserve Act are very powerful, and uh, because they're they're set up uh, to allow the Fed to do lending in unusual and exigent circumstances with the consent of the Treasury, and so you can do a lot with that, and I think that's what we're seeing right now and if we had to do more with that we could it's a board of governors program it's not an fomc program it's a board and we do need treasury authority but in uh special situations like this one and and what could be more special than this one makes a lot of sense to go ahead and use that power and uh and see if we can smooth out uh this ride as we get to the other side of this virus uh very quickly uh do you think baseball season starts this year you're a big cardinals fan I am. I haven't seen anything about baseball so far. So I was actually, I don't know about you, but I was, uh, one of the aspects of this crisis is I was very shocked when when uh, sports uh, decided to shut down. That really jolted me. So uh, one of one of many jolts during this crisis, but, uh, but it was shocking. Jim Bullard, uh, president of the St. Louis Fed, thank you very much for joining us this morning on Bloomberg Radio and Television Worldwide. Tom, I don't know about you and you, Lisa. I found myself watching football games from 20 years ago, watching the highlights of <laughs> seasons you? 20 years ago over the weekend. Just trying Luke to Howard also, yeah, just trying to keep in touch with with sport. Yeah, I to do that. What I know is Bullard mentioned he's a Cardinals fan, and Vet Bill started barking right away. I, you know. Well, Vet Bill was Red Sox, <clears> right? Diehard. Well, no, <laughs> no. He he loves the Dodgers. He likes the Die style. Hard. Loves the, the Dodgers. Dodgers. Okay. Yeah. Haley the- from Beverly Hills got him into the Dodgers. He's got the coat and the whole thing. Well, that Bill can come on and talk you about know, the Dodgers. Wait, you know, we're talking about Jim Bullard here. We got to go to break. We got to come back and talk about this. I mean. I, I just, I, what are these guys supposed to say? I mean, they got to wait to see what happens. We're going to carry on talking about this. We've got Mr. Kassman oh, from J.P. Morgan joining us now. Bruce, great Very to have good. you with us Very on good. the phone. Fantastic to have you with us, in fact. Let's talk about the Federal Reserve. They don't meet again until April 29th. We've learned that that doesn't really matter. Do you expect anything else from them anytime soon? Uh, well, there's a lot of uh, details to come out, especially about this Main Street lending program. Um, and I think they're going to roll with the punches here. And as I think you heard from Bullard and we've been seeing, the Fed is very creative and very aggressive here when it sees a problem. So um, I wouldn't rule out more Fed action, but we're not forecasting anything specific <clears throat> at this point. Bruce, we're making it up as we go. And all of our listeners, whatever their level of sophistication, know that. What's the attribute of how we make this up as we go that we should focus on? Well, I would say from the point of view of government policy, there's there's two pieces to this. One is not making it up. We've gone through the global financial crisis. We've dealt with issues that have threatened systemic uh, uh, stability. We've kind of created an infrastructure around that, and we're drawing on that. And that's a really good thing, and it's happening really quickly. The thing that's really unique about this crisis is how much we're hurting individual small businesses in a targeted way in a very short time. And that's where making things up in terms of getting these loan programs out, having the Fed do a remarkable amount to actually become a, 
uh, a creditor to the corporate sector at the, at the lowest level um, is really starting to be kind of really uh, unprecedented. And, and as you say, it's really making things up. So there's some of this which is got a very good toolbox, but there definitely is some stuff here which we're, we're really responding in an unprecedented way. I want to talk about the unprecedented function here, the fiscal stimulus function right now of the Federal Reserve, essentially, with the $450 billion they're being provided by the U.S. Treasury that they're going to lever up and lend out. How are they going to do that, given their staffing and expertise? Well, I think to a large degree, they're going to work through banks and other financial intermediaries. Uh, The SBA is basically going to guarantee loans taken by banks. The Fed is going to oversee it. Treasury is going to oversee it in some ways. But you have to work through the channels that exist. If you had to have uh, the Treasury and the Fed manage the individual loan decisions that are being made here, we'd never get things out. And this is a big issue, even going through the banking system, even going through channels. As Bullard was saying a few minutes ago, we know unemployment is rising. People are being laid off. The question is, can you get the money into the system quickly enough to limit the damage, cushion it, provide us with a a sense that not too much damage is being done once the economy turns on the lights again. Bruce, that's where I wanted to go, this question of speed and the sense that it needed to be done last week, two weeks ago, not now, and we still don't have the program up and running. And I'm wondering, do you have a sense of how much of the damage has already been done in an irreversible way in terms of layoffs and small businesses that have to shut down? Um, I don't think we know. We can see a, a hint of that in last week's claims numbers. Uh, we know there's going to be a huge rise in unemployment in the next uh, month or two. Uh, how many businesses close? I don't know, but it's going to be a lot. And let me just say, because I think there's an interesting international comparison here. Europe has a system where institutionally it's a lot harder to have that flexibility. And, and I think over long periods of time, flexibility has been very helpful for the U.S. But in this situation, their structures, uh, their programs have actually provided a very important sh- circuit breaker and I don't think you're going to see unemployment rise in Europe anyway, like the, what we're expecting to see in the U.S. in the coming few months. Why can't we be like that? Man, it's a brilliant insight, Dr. Caswood. Great. OK, everybody out there wants us to be like Europe for a cup of coffee, maybe three cups of coffee, maybe out to the 4th of July. Why can't we Europeanize and then pull back and become like we are later on? Well, I think that's in some ways what we're trying to do, although to be to be accurate here, we are still largely providing the support to income to people who are laid off, providing checks to people. We're not doing what the U.K. is doing, which is providing companies support for their payrolls. We're not doing yeah. what the German government is doing in terms of <clears throat> subsidizing short term work. I mean, that's a good question. I mean, there's the institutional side, which you can't change at this point. But the way our, our approach is going on policy well, it could be different, but it's but it is definitely a different one right now than what the Europeans are doing. The backdrop to give you guys a window into this listening across this nation is J.P. Morgan launches off the great work of Robert Melman from years ago, a 15 page report Friday evening, which is a must read on Global Wall Street. And the Feroli waltzes through with the U.S. view and then Kasman drops in with the, the global view. And it's just absolutely brilliant. How many people put that report together, Bruce? Like literally like 15 people, right? Well, globally, no. We've got actually a bit more than 30 economists. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just extraordinary. And so I I, I just I'm absolutely fascinated by what the American outcome is if the EU approach works so well. Do you just assume 
income substitution two, income substitution three? I mean, is that where we're heading? So I think the, the issue here is you've got attention because just remember, when we, when we get to the point where we turn the lights on, and that's a, a big call when the virus starts to fade, when we begin to take the restrictive policies off, you're going to get a huge bounce in growth. You're going to have some rebound. The question really is how much lingering damage is done and whether the cushions we put in place here make it such that we can come mostly back to normal. And our, our view is we're not. You know, we have a big rebound in the second half of the year. We have the U.S. growing at a 9% pace in the second half of the year, but that still leaves output three percentage points below where it was on the path we were following. So there's a lot of damage we think is going to get done, and this is going to take uh, a long time to heal. Um, we hope it's not going to be like the global financial crisis, where really we haven't healed fully from that, that damage. But, you know, it's way too early to kind of judge how the path ahead is going to is going to be filled. And, you know, the other thing here to just keep in mind is the amount of debt that's going to be needed, both on the public and private sector side, to fill the gap in the next few months is going to be an overhang issue that the ramifications of which we still really, I don't think, understand. And the ramifications of which everyone is trying to understand with whatever data, however sparse it may be, uh, is that we have. We're speaking with Bruce Kasman, J.P. Morgan's chief economist, managing director of global research. Uh, and Bruce, you're the perfect person for us to speak with, given your intersection of working at the New York Fed and the sort of mechanics of the market, as well as working globally and covering uh, everything as a senior international economist at Morgan Stanley, ahead of J.P. Morgan. And I'm wondering, as we head forward, a key question is, are we poised for a inflationary or deflationary environment going forward? What's your take on that? Well, I think over the next six months, it's pretty clear it's going to be deflationary. Just look at what oil prices are doing. The service sector is much bigger than uh, goods producing industries, which might have some supply chain pressures. So you look at the entertainment, uh, hotels, airlines, things of that. Inflation is going to come down sharply. Uh, the question is, where do we come out of this? I think certainly for the next couple of years, you have to believe uh, the rise in unemployment, the weakness and growth that's not going to be completely paid back. It's going to be disinflationary. We'll have negative inflation in the near term. We'll have low inflation. And obviously, that's a big challenge for central bankers who have already been having a very hard time getting inflation up over the last decade. So what does that mean in terms of how much debt some of these developed markets can incur? Well, I don't think there's a real constraint on the public sector side, especially given how low interest rates are and how much central banks are supporting in terms of the funding. I think the bigger issue for the next couple of years is really the buildup of debt on the private sector side and how much that hinders the recovery once we get back to more normal conditions. Over a longer period of time, the buildup in public sector debt has uh, issues that particularly I think in Europe is an important issue where there's not enough burden sharing going on across countries. But that's more of a chronic issue, which has, I think, hard, it's hard to figure out exactly how that's going to affect us over the next five, seven years. There's so many things we don't know about the next three months. So hard to go there at this point. Bruce Kasman, thank you so much for joining us today. Greatly, greatly appreciate that. Bruce Kasman is with J.P. Morgan. It is also a time to when you get Foreign Affairs magazine not reading two articles, but because of everybody's stuck at home, reading three or four articles, or going to what he invented, 
which is the CFR website, which we make light of it now. But, folks, when Richard Haas invented the modern Council on Foreign Relations website, it was an act of God. Never before have you had so much smart programming slammed in front of you on international relations. Website designer Richard Haas (laughs) joins us now, the president of the Council on Foreign Relations. Richard, did you know what you would rot when you were screaming, we've got to do a website and do it right? Did you have any idea where this would lead? Uh, Not even close. Uh, Not even uh, close. But it really is an amazing resource now, and I I feel like I have the right to brag on it. (laughs) Please. Uh, So many... Well, because other people do, you know, 99.9% of, uh, of the work, but, and it's, it highlights our work, but also the best from anywhere. I think one of, the, one of the reasons it's so good is we curate, and we've tried yeah. to create one-stop shopping, whether you're an expert or also, whether you're, or also if you're a beginner. Uh, we have, for yeah. example, the most trafficked part of the website, Tom, are these backgrounders and yes. explainers right where for go. people who are not experts. Guys, okay, guys, let me, let me interrupt Ambassador Haas, and Paul Sweeney wants to jump <laughs> here as well. Folks, dirty little secret, Tom Keene isn't that smart. I just go over to CFR and read the backgrounders as fast as I can. They go, Paul, Richard, they go, oh, God, he's just unbelievable. And Paul, Paul, jump in here, but I'm just reading the backgrounders. <laughs> right, we know, the, we, we know the truth. So, Richard, What's, as we sit back and take a look at what's going on around the world here with this virus, what, how do you, what are just some of your, your takeaways as to some of the governmental responses that we've uh, observed? Well, our first takeaway is that this is part and parcel of the world we live in. All these people who talk about it being a black swan or coming out of the blue are dead wrong. This was predictable. It happened now. And guess what? It's, things like this are going to happen again. That's my, my first takeaway. So governments need to be prepared. They should have been better prepared than they were. The international health machinery should have been much more oiled than it uh, was. We all ought to have had stockpiles. China ought to have communicated openly and honestly uh, about it, uh, you know, what had happened there. And then you know, moving forward, governments have to have, again, stockpiles. They've got to have uh, testing. They've got to have protocols ready. Essentially, the world was caught flat-footed for this. And most of the responses have been inadequate and incoherent, ours in particular. Uh, So it seems to me what's inevitable is that there will be COVID-20 or COVID-21 or some other disease and that we have to be prepared for it much better than we were for this. So how do you think, you know, life will change uh, after this? When we get to the other side here, do you really believe that governments can, in fact, you know, kind of prepare as you were just suggesting? To some extent. Uh, I would think that you're going to see a larger role for government. A couple of areas that come to mind is I do think you'll have more stockpiles of, say, equipment or ventilators. I think something like the Defense uh, Production Act, that idea, uh, will become more of a peacetime or normal thing. So we're going to have relationships established between the private sector and and government much more elaborate than they uh, are now. I think you'll see less supply, less uh, supply chain dependency. So I would think in a couple of years, you're going to see a policy where the United States will say two things. We are not going to single source anything that's critical, be it in China or anywhere else. We may, we're going to multiple source it, so we're less dependent on an interruption from one source. And second of all, we're going to build a domestic capacity. So mm-hmm. we're going to become a little bit more self-reliant. I think that's in our future. Tell me, 
about Lori Garrett. You have one of the jewels in our coverage of these viruses and Lori Garrett, her work on Ebola was original and pathbreaking as well. I'm sure you're calling up Lori, you're running into her in the hallway at CFR and saying, Lori, what's going on? How does she report to you? Well, actually, Lori, while she's still a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, is not on our staff anymore. She's active on okay. social media. She's active on MSNBC. Sure. And she's been yeah. an important voice in this debate for years. And she was one of those who first said, you'd better get ready. This is coming. Yep. We have yep. three people. We have three people. One is Tom Frieden, the former head of yep. the CDC. He's active uh, at, uh, on our staff. We have a guy named Tom Boyke, who started up a new really important site called Think Global Health. It's on CFR.org. It has become actually the best virtual venue where the leading experts in the world have conversations about global health issues. It started off just weeks before this happened, coincidentally, but it's already become a, a central hub of the uh, conversation. And then we have one other person, Yang Zhang Wang, uh, who's an expert on Chinese public health, as, as it turns out. So we've actually got three people on staff as well as any number of members. I know on my board, for example, we have people like uh, Peggy Hamburg, the former head of the FDA, uh, Sylvia Burwell, the former head of HHS. We've got several former heads of Homeland Security. So it turns out that we have uh, enormous uh, access to resources. So, Richard, what do you think this virus, uh, again, kind of looking ahead a little bit, means for globalization? Is that Have we seen peak globalization? Well, globalization continues. Globalization itself is just a reality. It's uh, about the globalization is simply the reality that an awful lot of stuff crosses borders uh, in great volume at great velocity. That doesn't change. Uh, the real what could change is the collective response to globalization. And so far, it's been anemic, uh, whether it's in the health area, obviously climate change, uh, you name it. Glo- the response to globalization has been inadequate. Uh, I wish I could sit here and say it's going to be a lot better going forward. We will have learned our lesson. But I'm worried that we're entering a period where a lot of countries are going to be looking inward. They're going to be strapped for cash, given everything that this is going to cost. So I don't, I don't think this is going to be a great era of what people in my business call global governance. Uh, I worry that there will continue to be a large gap between these global challenges and the collective response. I, I look Ambassador Haas the challenges forward and they center back to your book. We should mention that Richard Oswalks has a new book coming out May 12th on the world. It's a wonderful briefing uh, forward. Your previous book was on disarray and our fiscal responsibility. I believe the helicopters over Central Park are dropping money from what I can uh, observe from here, uh, Richard Haas. Give us an update, your report on our fiscal responsibility. Uh, well, helicopters are dropping money, and they're going to have to drop a lot more. Not only is taking care of the public health directly expensive, but relief for American firms and citizens and workers. So we just passed a $2 trillion uh, bill. My, my prediction, Tom, is that's the first of several. And the longer this goes on, the more we're going to need. Now, before this crisis even hit us, we were already racking up deficits at the tune of more than a trillion dollars a year. So we're going to start racking up deficits at the tune of, what, $3, 5000000000000 trillion this year. Uh, our debt uh, is going to grow you know, well into the 20s or $30 trillions of dollars. And the question is, to what extent is wow. the world going to be permanently willing to, to finance it? 
Richard Haas, thank you so much for your time today across this morning. He is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations on LinkedIn and Twitter. I've just put out this extraordinary compendium of medicine, Think Global Health, and look for that and study that in the coming days with the Council on Foreign Relations. Joining us now is Seb Galley of Nordea Bank, senior macro strategist. Seb, always great to get your voice on this program. A 19 handle on WTI. Just how much does that complicate things in this market? Well, it's a both a, a negative and a good thing, and it's a huge transfer of wealth, not immediately, but in the coming months as things start to normalize. And the question that you have to ask yourself if you're a bank and you're letting to a shale oil industry is whether this is shock is temporary or not. And behind that is a bet whether the Russians and the Saudis will de-escalate the process and arrive at an agreement. They both need to. The problem is they're both authoritarian figures, and therefore they would lose uh, if, if they would back down. And uh, that means several weeks at least uh, of this process before it happens. And I think this is the part which is not uh, expected is that eventually we're going to get some kind of normalization. Having said that, there's an oil glut, whatever happens because of the production right now uh, and, and because of the speed with which they'll be able to reduce some of their output. It should be, uh, it, it obviously will have an impact. Uh, and that means that oil prices is probably going to be back up to $45 within a few months. So it's, uh, it's a complex story. It's an important story from the point of view of the banks because whether they kill the shale oil industry or not, is a strategic uh, decision. And behind that, there's a, a lot of uh, backing so from some of the credit facilities which are available. But it's, uh, it's uh, an important conundrum from a, a high-yield perspective. And, of course, it means there are a lot of things which are attractive from uh, within the, the resource uh, sector, from a yield perspective, from an equity perspective, lots of dislocations, which yeah. means they themselves are exploited by merging or, or foreign investors like ourselves. We opened a credit fund, for example, uh, are actively uh, in this business. Sebastian, I'm, I, you said a lot of things that are very controversial. A lot of people would disagree that it's a positive right now to have lower oil prices just because nobody's going out and spending any money or traveling. $45 a barrel. How do we get there? Well, we get there by, by an agreement between the Saudis and the Russians. That should be enough to squeeze basically a lot, a lot of the bearish positions you have in the oil market, and that eventually should recenter the market towards uh, that, and that the equilibrium. I, I think it shouldn't be a surprise to, to anyone. The, the question is uh, how fast we get there. Is it uh, five months, or is it a year, or is it two years, or is it a few weeks? And the, the odds, because a de-escalation process, by definition, is a very slow process, uh, it, it'll take uh, probably a few months. Sebastian, what are the ramifications of an extension of what I'm going to call a grim virus outlook from March to April and even into May? How does that fold into economic calculations? Well, it means that uh, the the pain from a deficit point of view is is probably going to be uh, higher than is uh, currently expected. Having said that, uh, the fiscal package combined with the package from the Fed is a very impressive one. People should be reassured if they if you believe in apple pie, basically, if you believe in the U.S. government and uh, and the Federal Reserve, then they actually will manage the crisis very well. But if you focus on this, not on the United States, but some parts of emerging markets such as India, uh, where the situation is uh, getting dire very rapidly, yeah, uh, it it means it. It's a difficult environment for some, well, better for others, probably the U.S. Well, I'm glad you mentioned this because, you know, percolating folks in the literature over the weekend is what will be the action step for the IMF. I guess they got $1 trillion available. That's what Pharaoh has available as well. But, you know, these got $1 trillion available. Do you expect IMF to 
be more vocal this week in beginning to assist EM? So when actually, I, my father was an IMF person, I guess I was trained in that, in that group, but the IMF is ultimately the sum of its part, and the biggest part in it is in the United States. Exactly. The question is not what yeah. the IMF it's not what the U.S. It's not what the IMF wants. It's what the United States wants, and what the United States will want is to stabilize some of its allies and, uh, to some extent, help other emerging markets because it's not really good for uh, for U.S. products uh, going forward. So the the discussions are probably ongoing, but from a reputational point of view, it's very difficult for India, which whose data is probably questionable, uh, is uh, to go to the IMF at this point in time would be seen very badly by the populations and, and by the government. Nonetheless, and that means that delays the eventual intervention by by the IMF. So you have some major economies such as India, which definitely need some help. Uh, And you have some uh, economies like uh, Mexico, which has a currency that you've appreciated by 30 percent, is in difficulty, but is extremely well positioned once the U.S. rebounds. We've seen record lows for the RAND and the Mexican peso in the last couple of weeks, Seb. I just wanted to finish up by talking about the Fed. Last week, quite rightly, we spent a lot of time thinking about where the Fed was having success. Let's spend a little bit of time talking about how much they're spending to have that success. The balance sheet expanded $600 billion in one week. And as George Concarves, formerly of Nomura, pointed out, that's the equivalent of QE2 coming out of the financial crisis, Seb. That's huge. Sure. I mean, the central banks learn from the past and they anticipate and they, they basically become very adaptive and you should expect them to, to become very original going forward. This is not the end process from a Fed point of view. They're very efficient. And if you believe the Fed and you believe in apple pie, then, then believe that they're actually doing the right thing. And they definitely are. The shock is a brutal one, but they will continue to steadily innovate and surprise us. And I think that will translate to help for moms and pop shops and people who think they won't have access to that credit because they're too small. Uh, it, it eventually will, will happen. And so nobody should be discouraged by this. Well, it certainly helped last week, that's for sure, Seb. Always appreciate your time. Seb Galley there of Nodia Bank. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.